You're listening to Passions and Prologues, a literary podcast where each week I interview an author about a thing they love and how it inspires their work. I'm your host, Adam Sokol, and today's guest is Michelle Cameron, author of Babylon, which is a novel of Jewish captivity. It's a really, really phenomenal multi-generational biblical saga of Sarah and her family when they're exiled to Babylon and uh, King Nebuchadnezzar conquers Judea and basically destroys their, their temple. I find myself constantly fascinated by books that are set in the time of when the Bible was created. I am not a religious person, but I am interested in the historical aspects of that particular time period. And so I really, really loved Babylon. And we had a wonderful conversation about her passion, which is re-reading books, something that I find myself doing every single year. Uh, we talked about the kind of seasonal times that I reread books, but we also got into why she rereads them both for enjoyment and nostalgia, as well as doing specific work-related tasks. It was just a really interesting conversation. We talked about how people tend to reread uh, older slash children's books more often than they do other types of stories as well. Just again, really delightful conversation. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Uh, it's just, it was just a really, really fun and in-depth discussion. Uh, and again, whether you are religious or not, whether you have experience of understanding the Old Testament or not, I highly recommend you check out Michelle's new book, Babylon, because it is just a delightful story. And again, it's it's one of those multi-generational sagas where you you get to know kind of people throughout the full breadth of their life. And these are stories that I really love. It reminds me always of uh, Pachinko is like the best example I can ever think of, of by Min Jin Lee. So if you're into that type of story, you're going to love Babylon. And speaking of multi-generational family sagas, the book I want to recommend to you today is The Family Morphowitz by Daniel H. Tertel. Uh, this is another story of a Jewish family. Uh, and it starts with the abandoned son, Ezekiel, who is the narrator of the story. Uh, basically, Hezekiah, excuse me, has been tasked with being sort of the chronicler of the family's life. And so they all get together during a high holiday. And basically, he chronicles all the things that this family has experienced uh, from fleeing Nazis in Germany all the way to the dynasty that they started to spread in the in times of New York City when they the family first came over. Uh, it talks about you know how from the embers of World War II they rose this very, very powerful and ruthless family. Um, just a really interesting story where all of the different aspects of the family are intertwined and you get to learn about these relationships and the background for how they were formed. Um, it is kind of like a retelling of Ovid's Metamorphoses if you are into that type of story. But again, I love, love, love a family saga. And this is a really phenomenal one. That's The Family Morphowitz by Daniel H. Tertel. So between that and Michelle's book, Babylon, you've got a lot of family saga reading you can catch yourself up on that I think you're going to adore. As always, if you want to get a hold of me, you can find me at passionsandprologues at gmail.com or on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram at passionsandprologues. I share book recommendations. I do all sorts of quirky things and you know, all the fun things that we all do on social media. And that's where you can find me. Okay, that is enough housekeeping. I am going to transition smoothly to my discussion with Michelle Cameron, author of Babylon on Passions and Prologues. 
Hi, my name is Sara, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com. Okay, Michelle, what is something you are super passionate about that we're going to be discussing today? Okay, well, I'm a tremendous reader, and I I reread for a number of different reasons. Um, and one is that when I'm writing a book, I'm always worried that I'm going to end up borrowing, you know as it were, borrowing from someone else, especially someone else that I um, really admire, um, you know, how the writing, their writing is. So I have a set of books, largely childhood books, mm-hmm. um, but not only, that I will go back to time and again, particularly when I'm writing, but also as comfort reads, when I feel like I need something that I know so well and I can sort of just dive back in there. So I think rereading is a big passion of mine. I, right before we started recording, you told me this and I got very like inordinately excited because I know exactly what you mean. I love rereading. I, and we'll get into it a little bit later, but like throughout specific times of the year, I have certain books that I always reread. In fact, we're we're recording this at near the end of September, so we are in that autumn mode. I have I have read um, the short story, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, probably uh-huh. every year since I was like fourteen at this age. But I I also know what you mean about like children's books. In fact, a long long time ago, I interviewed um, Daniel Handler, who is better known as Lemony Snicket, and he we talked about the fact that like the books that we as human beings hold most dearly and most fondly tend to be children's books because if you think about it, like most novels that you read as an adult, if it's three, four or 500 pages, you might not go back to that that often. But when you're a kid, especially when like you're sitting in your parents' lap and they're reading to you or it's bedtime, think about how many of those books you got to reread over and over and over again. So um, let's start with like the the children's books you mentioned. What do you, like? What are some of the ones that that you go back to, and 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 why? I'm really interested in that. Okay, absolutely. Um, when I was um, in fourth grade, my Hanukkah present that year was the entire series of Anne of Green Gables, mm-hmm. and um, you know, and and it actually wasn't the entire series because there's a whole there, there's a couple of books that um, that Ellen McGovery wrote after um, the Anne books um, that I only discovered when I was an adult, mm-hmm. um, and of course got those and read those. But um, I would say a lot of the very traditional what they tend to call girl books mm-hmm. um, 
are, are on that list. Um, the Betsy Tacey series, I love. Um, the um, And there's one book, again, that isn't quite in that series that the author wrote. That That's the book when I'm really depressed or upset. I just go and, and, and read that one. Um, so there, and, but you know, what's interesting too is there are also classics mm-hmm. that I do reread, not to get off the kids' books, but, um, well, we'll talk about the classics in a minute. But, you know, and I do find that in rereading these books as an adult, um, the kids' books as an adult, I have a very different perspective on them. Um, and even to the point where sometimes I'm like, did I really love this this much? And I'm thinking, for example, you know, some of the like little women books. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, you're preaching at me. I don't like that. It's so it is so interesting when as you, you know, as we become adults and as we become you know, a little bit older adults, like when you go back and you reread children's stories, like how you you take the side of other people like you tend to um this isn't a book but I I saw this thing about Ferris Bueller's Day Off recently this like video about Ferris Bueller's Day Off where the the person was like and of course the evil villain the principal who's just trying to look out for his the the student who he cannot find like it was I I think about that same thing like with 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 children's books all the time like so many of the quote unquote issues that occur in children's books could be resolved by just telling a parent. And yes. as an older person, you you read it and you're like, if anyone would have contacted any adult in this community, <laughs> which again wouldn't make much for much of a story, admittedly, but it, yeah. Absolutely not. And and it would end, you know, all it would take all the fun out of it. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you're right. It would have solved things. Yeah. Pretty quickly. Yeah, you mentioned, um, you know, there being like specific books that you read when you're really down. And uh, I tend to reread seasonally. You know, I mentioned The Legend of Sleepy Hollow this time of year. There is a book by Gregory Maguire, who is most most well-known for the Wicked books. Yes. Um, but he wrote a book called Hidden Sea, which is about the Nutcracker. And um, it's yeah. not even like Christmassy at all, but it's this in- extremely interesting background kind of the the legend of the nutcracker and i read that in in december so i'm very like seasonal um but for you you mentioned also classic books like what are some of the classic books you reread and why like are you a seasonal one or is it just like when the mood strikes you i think a lot of it is when the mood strikes me although there are some books i i definitely gravitate toward you know at certain times of year Mm -hmm. um i'm a huge jane austen um And in fact, um, when I was researching one of my books, it was set during the Napoleonic era. And um, I said, oh, I can read all of Jane Austen again as research Mm -hmm. because it's set in that time period, et cetera. But um, one of my favorite memories of travel is we went to Bath in England. And of course, they're big Janeites there. Um, and I actually got a, a shirt that said, you know, this is what a Janeite looks like right <laughs> on the shirt. So, yeah, no, I mean, Jane Austen, um, I will slug through Middlemarch. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I would say every two to three years, mm-hmm. you know, 
Um, so um, definitely, I don't consider that comfort read necessarily. But I do do it because she's such an amazing, amazing writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and and when um, I think about um, I write Jewish historical fiction. Mm-hmm. And so I will go back to her Daniel Deronda um, many, many times just to see how she handled it as an outsider mm-hmm. writing about, you know, the Jewish people. So I also, I also reread specifically for certain things mm-hmm. um, as well. That's really, I'd like to dig a little deeper into that because that's, that's really fascinating. I, um, so I am querying a novel right now I'm, and it's uh, magical realism. It's a little mm. bit of fantasy, but it is like, I definitely know that I am inspired by the authors that I read and like cherish the most. Like my favorite book ever is The Starless Sea by Aaron Morgenstern, which is, it's like this story. It's basically a story about the importance of stories. And I love it so much. It's such a wonderful book and she trusts the reader. But I also am a big like Neil Gaiman fan. But there's also this book that I reread at the end of every year called Lillian Boxfish Takes a Walk by Kathleen Rooney. And listeners are probably rolling their eyes because I feel like I talk about it like once a month. Um, but it's just this beautiful book. And like I, I found myself when I was writing my manuscript there were some times where I was like, is that a little too Aaron Morgan stern? Like I found myself thinking like, is that too on the nose or is it like an homage or is it that type of a thing? So, and you mentioned reading things also for like research and for other reasons. So like when you're, um, when you're reading for research, kind of what does that entail? So like for your, for your new book, Babylon, like what does reading for research entail for you? And like, kind of like break that down for, for me a little bit. Sure. I mean, obviously, um, I start with books, clearly, but for the most part, they're nonfiction mm-hmm. books. They're, they're books about the period. They're books um, specifically talking about the events that I'm going to want to cover in these books. Um, I mentioned that um, um, Beyond the Ghetto Gates is my Napoleonic novel where he went and he demolished um, the ghetto gates throughout Italy when he was a young general on a military campaign through there. Um, You can drown in the number of books about Napoleon. Um, There are just so many, and Mm -hmm. you do have to sort of pick and choose. one of the, so with Babylon, it was a little bit different. Um, there's a lot of um, archaeological research that can go into it. And actually, I mean, I'm astonished at the sudden, like, um, increased pace of archaeological findings mm-hmm. these days. It seems like every other day there's something else going on out there. Um, but also, um, a big part of it was we're talking about rereading, was rereading the Bible mm-hmm. um, because there are biblical uh, prophets in the novel. And so I, I had to go through and reread sort of the book of Daniel, the book of Ezra, what Jeremiah had to say. Um, so that, that too was an interesting experience in terms of is that, you know, can that be considered research? Well, for me, it had to be. Mm-hmm. For me, it absolutely had to be. 
Yeah. So I, so I was, I was raised Roman Catholic, but my father's side of our family is Jewish. He, my dad was non-practicing, but we went to my grandma's house for all like the high holidays and, um, and, and, uh, you know, we went and sat Shiva when she passed away. And like, so I'm familiar with the, like Judaism, like the, basically the old Testament for people who are listening, the first half of the Bible. Um, but I, I'm interested for, for you, like, I have always been fascinated by, by books and novels that take place in the, like the non-religious, like that time period and around the like both the the church and and the the Jewish faith, but not necessarily the like religious stories, just like books that are kind of set in those time periods and um and about all of like the societal aspects of that time period. So so for you, like you said, doing this research in these you know holy texts in these these bases these bases for millions and millions of people's uh, belief systems. How do you go about taking that and saying like, okay, I want to write a novel in here. I guess like, how do you decide what you want mm-hmm. to expand on using your own creativity and, and skills as I, a writer, as opposed to which parts are like, okay, I'm going to keep this very much grounded in, in the text. Yeah, no, that was a huge, huge challenge for me because I didn't want to set aside the fact that, as you say, millions and millions of people believe in this Mm -hmm. and I didn't want to disregard that but I also didn't want to like you know preach at people or say yes okay um let's give an example um there's a scene in the novel where um Daniel's um the prophet Daniel has three friends who basically were brought to Babylonia with Mm -hmm. him and they have a story of how they were um they were told, okay, it's time to bow down to Marduk, who was the big god in Babylon. Mm-hmm. Um, and they refused, and they were shut up in a furnace. And they basically, the way the Bible story goes, is they they walked around, they had a nice walk in this furnace, um, talking to an angel. Mm-hmm. And then when they came out, you know, everyone was so impressed that they weren't dead. Um <laughs> So anyway, in the book, the way I handle it is I have them retell this story. And then I have someone in the crowd say, that couldn't possibly have happened. You're lying to us. And I leave it unresolved. Mm -hmm. And so that way, I think what happens is that, again, the reader of faith can say, oh, that's an unbeliever, you know? And the reader who is, you know, does not have that religious background or desire can say, oh, somebody's pointing out that this is just a story. So I tried to handle a lot of the biblical stories that way. I, I, I call it giving the um, giving me plausible deniability in terms of these Bible stories that I did include. Yeah, I, I love this so much because the way that I have always, um, the way that I have always approached religious stories is like it's about the like the meaning behind the story. It's about like the lesson mm-hmm. you're supposed to learn. It's less about like did this thing happen or not? Because you know it's these books are thousands of years old, and sometimes they're told second and, and third hand. So it's like okay, if you can remove like it's like the fantasy of some of these stories and be like whether or not these things happen, that doesn't diminish or strengthen the importance of the story. 
and what it actually means for us as, as readers. And I love that. No one will see it because this is a podcast, but we were both kind of laughing when we were talking about it. They took a nice stroll around the furnace, which I really like. like the, it's it's so it's so interesting. And like something else I want to ask you about about Babylon. So it's a it's a multi-generational saga, like you said, it's yes. set in, in biblical times. And I I adore books like this. I love long stories about multiple generations of a family, but as someone who has experience now like writing a story where you get so attached to these characters, was it challenging for you or was it invigorating to know that you were going to write about all these different characters as you're kind of moving through this? Like, was it hard for you to say like goodbye, quote unquote, to a character as you moved on? Or I guess like, how did you approach that aspect of the story? That's a really interesting question. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that I wrote this book very unintentionally. Mm. And what I mean by that is this was my second novel. And I used what um, I called the snippet approach, but most people would call the pantser approach, where I would envision a scene and I would sit down and write by the seat of my pants. Mm -hmm. Um, Generally with my novels, I have at least a timeline that I have to adhere to because again, I like historical fiction. Mm -hmm. But with this one, I was taking a scene here and a scene here and a scene here and then eventually piecing it all together. So in terms of saying goodbye to characters, sometimes it just happened. Mm. And I was able to sort of move on. And there's one major character, um, and I won't I won't give any spoilers, um, but there's one major Helen ca- character who happens to to die. Um, and there's still a quarter of the book to go. Mm-hmm. And that was a sad moment, but it was a necessary moment, if you know what I mean. You know, I mean, another one of the things that I teach when I teach creative writing is that you have to be mean to your characters because, again, it's like what you said before. If they go and find a parent and solve the problem, what's the point of the book? If you're if you're kind and nice to your characters all the way through, what's the point of the book? Yeah. I, so I want to get into the, the teaching aspect. I just because so for longtime listeners, um, Judith Lindbergh, who was on a while ago, was uh, one of the you know, founders of the Writer Circle, which Michelle also has been working at for a very long time and teaching. And I, I want to get into the creative writing aspect because you're right. Like it's something where for me, I love books with characters that you genuinely like, and they seem like genuinely good people. Like I, I talk all the time about if a book is just full of horrible characters, I just don't want to read. I, I understand that those, that some are integral to plots moving forward. Cause if no sure. one is bad, nothing happens. Um, but if it's just a book full of awful people being awful to each other, I'm like, Oh, this is, this is rough. So the book that I wrote, it was very challenging for me to come up with like, how can I make these characters awful or not like make challenging decisions that I hate, but have to move the plot forward. It's like, you know, they, was it kill your darlings is kind of like the phrase. So when you're teaching, how do you, you know, how do you keep these people who, whether they're adults or children excited about the writing process and these characters that you want them to fall in love with because you want them to spend so much time with them, but also being like, you're also going to have to make bad things happen to them. Like, how do you approach that with, with students? 
Yeah, no, it's it is a it's a difficult problem because so many writers are such nice people. <laughs> so we don't want bad things to happen to our characters. Um, but I have to tell you, I've never seen a class as excited as one of my teen classes when I said, today we're going to write about villains. Mm-hmm. And they got so excited about that. And then I said, okay, but hang on. We need to find what it is that you that, that motivates the character, what moved this character into the dark side. Because nobody, and this is an argument I have with my husband all the time, you know, when someone does something awful, he's like, how can they look at themselves in the mirror? And I'm like, they have no problem mm-hmm. doing that because they don't recognize what they're doing is evil. I don't. I honestly don't believe that people consider themselves evil. And so, what's the rationale? What's the motivation behind those characters, the really bad ones? And then for the really good ones, the ones that you obviously like to write about, I do. <laughs> what are their weaknesses? Mm-hmm. What is it that makes them a fully fleshed character? So that, that, you know, so that you can, you know, when you do challenge them, when you put them in the middle of a conflict, you know, what choices are they going to make? One of my favorite, favorite exercises with both kids and adults, but the kids love this one, is I say, all right, let's take a character. She's a mother. And um, she has two characteristics that you know about. She loves her toddler son. But um, she is deathly afraid of it's either lions or tigers. I switch it up. So where are you putting them in order to create conflict? And they think for a moment, they go, oh, we're going to the zoo. So they go to the zoo. And of course, what happens next is the toddler somehow finds his way into the animal's cage. Mm-hmm. And then I'm saying, knowing these two characteristics, what choices does the mother make? And then what are the consequences of those choices? Mm-hmm. And again, the adults generally come up with three choices. You know, you're paralyzed with fear. You, you go into the tiger's cage anyway, or you call for help. The kids, of course, come up with much wilder solutions to this problem. Mm-hmm. So it's it's great to see that. And then, of course, you walk through the consequences of, you know, if the child dies, it's a short-term consequence, but then there's that long-term searing guilt that the mother has to carry for the rest of her life. Or if she, you know, so it's it's a whole exercise that just sort of shows that once you create a character, you have to follow through on both strengths and weaknesses in order to have them react when you, the writer, put them in really terrible situations. Yeah, I, I think that's that's why so many, before I had written manuscripts, I would have these authors all the time explain to me that, you know, they, they built out these whole like character studies. They've had like, they would have like notebooks full of details and background about these characters. And I used to be like, oh my God, that sounds like so much work. That sounds so exhausting. Like, but now... I, I understand. And it's the same thing with, um, I, I work in, for a tech company, I, I do marketing. And like, one of the things mm-hmm. we do is we create personas. And the reason we create a persona 
of the people that we're talking to. And like, we get all the way into like, it's, we don't just say like a sales leader. We say, uh, you know, Carl is a 47 year old upper middle class, blah, blah, blah from New Jersey. And the reason we do that is so that when we're writing, we know how to approach any single scenario. And it's the same thing for authors. Like, like you said, you have to really think through what they would do in these situations that may not even come up in your novel, but exactly. you need to be prepared to say like, okay, but this is how they like to keep, to stay true to the character and not just make, you have to do the hard work at the beginning to do all this character study so that when you are approaching a difficult decision they have to make, you don't just right. take right. it easy. Right. right. I, I mean, and I think what's wonderful about doing all that early work well, there are two things. First of all, I mean, one of the novels that I wrote, um, I really, I, I, I tried to shortchange all that work. Mm-hmm. And I was like, recognizing, well, what would morale do in this situation? And then I, I realized I had to go back and, and think this through. Mm-hmm. But the really marvelous thing about when you've done all that work is then you can let the characters take over. The characters can then just sort of lead you and you're just, you're just typing. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, you're just letting them tell you what they do. And that's because they really enter into sort of your subconscious. Yeah. And and they're 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 in control. And those are my best days of writing when I don't even have to think about it because I've I've done that hard work. Did you do that sort of character work for Babylon? Because like I said, there's um, you know, there's Sarah and there's Nebuchadnezzar, and there's these characters that people who, whether or not they're familiar with the biblical stories, these characters are very fleshed out throughout history. Like, did you do that type of work or did you sort of rely on the things that already existed about these types of of characters? Well, so there are a couple of things. Um, All of my historical fiction um, is based around truly fictional characters that are thrust into this sort of historical moment. Mm-hmm. So um, Sarah, who you mentioned, is the matriarch of this, you know, um, she raises her children, she raises her grandchildren um, in Babylon. Um, <clears throat> a character like Nebuchadnezzar, of course, um, is historically based. Mm-hmm. Um but you, 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 then you just sort of think about how would someone who is in control of such a enormous empire, and honestly, Babylon was the center of the world at this point, mm-hmm. you know, how would they approach life? How would they react, you know, if, and um, at the beginning of the novel, if he learns that his three children um, are all vying for his throne and using dreams to do that. Um, so there's, um, so, so part of it is simply, what did these characters do in history? And how did they feel while they were doing it? How, how did they approach these, these issues? Of course, with my fictionalized characters, I have a lot more leeway. And that's, mm-hmm. I think, where the harder work comes in. Mm-hmm. Because you do have to figure out, all right, um, you know, if if um, if, if a, one of these characters is faced with this particular problem, mm-hmm. you know, you need to know enough about them. So what made you want to write a novel in this specific time period. You mentioned Napoleon and some of your your other, your passions, like, 
you know, like you know, the, the different authors you love and all these different things, like what made you want to go back to this specific time frame and these specific stories and, and build out your own novel during this time? So this really um, snapped into being when I was writing my first historical novel, which was The Fruit of Her Hands. Um, and The Fruit of Her Hands, actually, that inspiration was from my 13th century rabbi ancestor, mm. who what really experienced the rise of anti-Semitism in medieval Europe. Um, and there was an episode in, in the novel where the king of France, basically having been told that the Talmud is a terrible, terrible book, rounded up every volume of the Talmud that he can find and loaded 24 cartloads of them and brought them into a Paris market square and um, burned them. Um, and so my, my heroine, who is the rabbi's wife, again, fictionalized because in medieval times, you did not have, um, you know, I'm sorry about the beeping. Um, um, in fictional times, you don't, um, there, there's no records of women unless they were queens or very notable. So again, I had a lot of leeway there. Watching this happen. Hang on. I'm sorry. Um, That's okay. She's watching. All right. I'm just going to let it go. Uh, she's watching this happen. And she suddenly thinks about the psalm um, by the rivers of Babylon. And she re recollects how in these exiles, and of course the Jews in your, medieval Europe were exiled, um, she thinks about how they, um, um, how they, um, were able to thrive there. Mm -hmm. And that started me thinking about Babylon. And it started me thinking about, you know, this is um, an amazing period of time. Um, let me go learn a little bit about it. This is how a lot of my novels start. Let me go learn a little bit about mm -hmm. it. Um, and so with Babylon, one of the themes that I really explore in a lot of my fiction is the um, is the tug of war between assimilating into a society or maintaining uh, religious tradition. And I could see that happening in Babylon so much. You know, the Jews were exiled there. They were thrust into this society. Um, and so in terms of Sarah's children, for example, one of them really drank the Kool-Aid. And, you know, she, she married a Babylonian. She, you know, at one scene, she marches her children in to bow down to all of these idols, you know, while, while her mother's watching this, horrified. Um, and another becomes a serious, you know, obsessively adherent to the religion. And, you know, another one finds sort of a middle way. Um, he's, he, he becomes a scribe of a lot of the biblical stories. Um, but he also marries the Babylonian wife. So um, a big part of, of how Babylon sort of came to being was, again, my trying to approach the whole issue of do, do we just sort of give up on religion and assimilate, or mm -hmm. do we keep the culture? Do we try and sustain that because it enriches us? Yeah. 
So for people who are going to read Babylon, whether they're familiar with, you know, the not only the the biblical stories, but like the the historical I always talk about in my family, like I said, my, my father is uh, non-practicing, but I would absolutely describe him like culturally as Jewish, yes. like people who are culturally Jewish or know people better. They they know what, what I mean. And I live in a, I live in a place, uh, Cleveland Heights, Ohio, which is extremely Jewish. And like, you know, we have mm-hmm. our Jewish delis and we have, you know, kind of every, you know, every Sabbath you see people walking to temple and like, it's very much both cultural and religious, and, and I love it. But for people who will read this, who maybe either know or don't know the stories, like what do you want them to to take away from reading Babylon? So it's it's I I I really tend to write about periods of Jewish history that nobody knows. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody really knows about the um, the rise of, of anti-Semitism during the Middle Ages. They they don't know a lot about Napoleon's opinions of the Jews and how he did that. And they really don't know a lot about the Babylonian exile. So one of the things I want them to take away is a greater sense of history, Jewish or not, mm-hmm. that, you know, these things happened. Um, in terms of Babylon, a lot of what happened there really affected the Jewish religion as we know it today. I mean, what happened was, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's troops raised Jerusalem to the ground. They, they burned the temple. And in, in ancient times, if you lost your temple and somebody else's gods vanquished yours, they were said to be stronger. So for the most part, you would just take them. Mm-hmm. But in Babylon, what happened is instead of doing that, you know, a good segment of the Judeans found different ways to worship. They didn't have a temple. They couldn't sacrifice. So they turned to prayer. And they turned to, as I said, writing down these stories that end up in the Bible so they can keep a record of their people. And I think that to a large extent, this is one of the reasons why the Jewish people survived when so many ancient peoples didn't was because of this. And yet when when you think about Jewish history, you don't automatically think of the Babylonian exile. You know, you think of of, of Passover, mm-hmm. you think, you know, with Moses, you think of the Romans sometimes, you know, casting the Jews out. Obviously, you think of the Holocaust, mm-hmm. and then you think about the state of Israel. Um, so these are sort of the touch points that everybody knows but there's so much more to the history. I mean, the history is amazing. So that's kind of what I want people to take away. Oh, I love that. I love that so much. I have one more question for you. Um, I always end with having the author who has come on give a recommendation of any kind. It can be a book. It can be a TV show. I always joke. I had somebody say that you should go for more walks. Like it can be anything <laughs> you want to recommend. What is just something that you think more people should be aware of? That's such a good question, and I'm it, I'm scrambling for an answer. Uh, okay, I will I will give you one one book that I read recently, which is absolutely um, exquisite, and I'm I'm is the um, 
God, I just glanced at it this morning. It's about a man who worked as a guard in the Metropolitan Museum Mm. for 10 years. And um, I'm really trying to figure out what the the name of it is. Um, Something about beauty. Is it all the beauty in the world? All the beauty in the world. And if you love art, and if you love the fact that people sort of embrace art, that's a tremendous book. I mean, I we go to the Metropolitan Museum a lot. Mm-hmm. So it spoke very personally to me because I could picture myself in the exact spot that he's standing in for hours on end. Mm-hmm. But his approach to it was was beautiful. And it's a lovely memoir. And I'm not usually a, a fan of memoir, but he ties it into the death of his brother. And it's it's a beautiful book. I really highly recommend it. I'm absolutely going to check that out just for everyone listening. And I did not know that off the top of my head. I did the magic of Google while Michelle was (laughs) describing it. Well, I I was so excited to get to talk to you. And, you know, when when you reached out, I, you had no way of knowing, like I said, my family history and how closely Mm -hmm. this book kind of connects to, to the history, like I said, of of my family. And I'm I'm so excited to dive into it. This conversation was, was so fascinating. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Passions and Prologues is proud to be an evergreen podcast and was created by Adam Sokol. It was produced by Adam Sokol and Sean Rule Hoffman. And if you are interested in this podcast and any other evergreen podcast, you can go to evergreenpodcast.com to discover all the different stories we have to tell. Bonjour. This is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor, and every week I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food, so come join me on Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app.